Well, that is awesome. That is awesome. Amen for that. Amen for that. I know that uh, it takes a lot of courage to come up uh, and sing in a microphone. Uh, I, I preach. I do not sing. Uh, Jamie heard me sing this morning, uh, and I think he will agree with that. But uh, we are really, really blessed uh, to have the Urban Impact Choir with us this morning. Well, good morning. My name is Jared. I know that I preach a number of times over in the third service. I've got to introduce myself over there a few times. But uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'll offer the 30-second introduction. Um, I've been at Christ Church now for about 14 years. Um, I've been married to my wife, Deb, uh, for 13. We have two kids uh, Caden and Langdon, uh, six and four. Uh, for the uh, first part of our time here at Christ Church, we worked in the youth ministry. Uh, I've since gone on to work with the uh, Silver Ring thing, a ministry that started out of here, and I have come back uh, more recently to uh, help out Pastor Barry and uh, Elizabeth Barry with some of the counseling needs here at the church. So along with all that and uh, the little kids and I'm enrolled in a doctoral program in seminary, I remain fairly busy, but I am happy to be here uh, this morning looking at this wonderful passage Uh, in the book of Mark. But before we do, will you pray with me? God, thanks for today. Thank you for the fact that you speak to us through your word. Father, pray that you use my lips, speak through me this morning. Use my heart, Father. I pray that uh, you help us hear the message you want us to hear this morning. Father, thank you for today. Be with us in your name. Amen. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that we've been in a series called The King's Cross. We've been looking through the book of Mark, and we're going to notice that all these passages really point us to the cross. Uh, It's fitting as we approach uh, the Easter season. Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 2. One of the things that we're going to see from this passage this morning is that what this man and his friends thought that they might have wanted, the physical healing, was indeed different from what Christ thought that he needed. This miracle is about putting first things first. See, to Christ, it was more important for him to heal him spiritually than physically. So this morning, we're going to hear about the Christ that we need, not necessarily the Christ that we want. You know, as kids, we do this a lot. I know I have two kids, as I mentioned, and they always think that what they want will really make them happy. Uh, As parents, we know differently. Uh, One of the things that my wife and I like to do is read uh, read books to our children. And uh, one of the books that we got um, uh, a few months back that they like to read uh, before bedtime is a pretty ridiculous book. But nonetheless, it's called When I Have Kids. And the premise of this book is when my children have kids, they're going to do things differently. They're going to do things the way that uh, they want them to happen. Uh, Their version of what happiness is. So as you flip through this book... It's things like, when I have kids, they can eat dessert before dinner. They can eat whatever they want. When I have kids, they can go to bed whenever they want to. When I have kids, they can only have one bath a week. They don't have to go to the doctors or have shots. They don't have to go to school if they want to. When I have kids, they can do their homework or not do their homework. It doesn't matter. When I have kids, they can be mean to anybody around them. They can watch TV at full volume, any station they want at any time of day. Now, the first time I read this book, I thought, oh, great, there's going to be some kind of deep application at the end of this book that tells kids that, hey, you need to listen to your parents, some kind of great meaning. And then I realized, nope, it just ends with when I have kids. And I thought, that author is a complete idiot. Who would write that? But then I looked over at my kids' faces, and their eyes were glowing, their mouth wide open, full of awe, full of wonder. And I realized... Maybe the author wasn't an idiot, but a genius, getting their kids' attention. 
Because, you see, if kids could articulate their concept of the ideal parent, they would say, we want a parent who makes me happy, who fulfills my every wish, who never makes me bathe, who lets me eat candy, Coke, and French fries at all times. But as parents, we know differently. We're committed to our version of what we know that they actually need. Baths, vegetables, things for their health and wholeness. And as children do this, we are often like children when it comes to Jesus. We want a Savior who gives us what we want, not necessarily what we need. And we often want Jesus to leave the other things alone. But what we need is a Jesus who's committed to our version of his version of what eternal happiness is. The Jesus really we need looks down into the depths of our soul and says the spiritual is far more important than the physical. That's what he said to the paralytic in this story. And while he did heal him physically, that wasn't his primary mission. And this parable teaches us that this morning. Now, as we look through the book of Mark, you'll notice there's a lot of healings. There's a lot of stories. And we're going to touch on some of these in the, in the upcoming weeks. But these parables, these miracles, really show us something about Jesus that we need to know. We need to understand who he is and what his mission and purpose really was here on the earth. Miracles show us things about Jesus. It was John Stott who said, There's no place for a thorough discussion of the possibility and purpose of miracles. It's sufficient to indicate that the value of Christ's miracles lies less in their supernatural character than in their spiritual significance. They were signs as well as wonders. They weren't performed selfishly or senselessly. Their purpose was not to show off or to compel submission. They were not so much demonstrations of physical power as much as they were illustrations of moral authority. See, his miracles teach us something about him. So in order to understand what, we're trying to, what we need to learn from this parable this morning, it's important that we look at the context of it, the background of it. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn back to chapter 1. And we're going to look at um, the end of the chapter, starting in verse 35. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be up on the screen behind me. And I'm not going to go into depth of what happened, but it helps us reorient us to what, what's happening in this passage, what really was his mission. It says, starting in verse 5, excuse me, verse 35, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they explained, Everyone's looking for you, Jesus replied. Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. This is why I've come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, you could make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. You see, Jesus surprises his disciples here. Simon comes up to him and says, hey, hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. You need to be where the people are. But Jesus understood that they were being attracted to him for the wrong reasons. He was more interested in the quality of the people's response than the quantity of the crowd. He understood his mission 
was to preach the word. Let us go so I can preach there also. So despite his apparent success, he felt like he needed to move on to preach the word. What was the word? The word came from Mark 1, verse 15. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was his mission. That's why he came. The material and the bodily benefits were not and are not the thing that mattered most to Christ. He understood that's not what they needed first. That's the key to this passage. That's the key to this parable. Because we're often attracted to the things that are unseen and attracted to the things that are seen and temporal, the bodily, the material. That's why 2 Corinthians 4 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Most of the people that were being attracted to Christ were attracted to the seen, the tangible, the bodily, the physical, the healings. And we see this in both these cases. This man with leprosy in in the end of chapter 1 comes up. He was an outcast from society. Lepers had to stay outside the walls and they had to announce themselves unclean. They weren't allowed to approach anybody who was clean, who didn't have leprosy. But yet he comes up to Christ, forces his way through. He says, Christ, if you're willing, make me clean. And at that moment, you can just see the compassion in, in Christ's heart. His heart bursts with love and he touches the man. He didn't yell to the man from afar. He touches the man. He came down into his circumstances and physically touched the leper and defied all the the social norms of the day, touching a leper. He got into his circumstances, came into his situation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By his touch, he takes on all that we deserve and gives us all that we don't deserve in his righteousness. The man was immediately cured. Then he goes and tells, hey, you know what? Don't go tell everybody. Go tell the priest first. Why? Because in the law of Moses, there was, there was a process that needed to happen. If a leper was cleansed, they had to go and do a, a bunch of ceremonial sacrifices. They had to do some bathing and cutting their hair, and then there was a waiting period, and then the priest had to pronounce them clean so they can be reconciled back to society. And Jesus said, look, go do that first, because if you go spreading the news to everyone that that's what I'm, do, that, that's what I'm doing, then they're going to be attracted to the wrong reasons. But yet this man goes out and tells everybody. We can't blame the man. I, I, you know, if you had leprosy and you're immediately healed, that would be hard to keep in. But yet he did that. And then we pick it up in chapter 2, our, verse for t- our passage for today. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people had heard he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, there are many theories of what the word home means here in this passage. Understand, Jesus was obviously using Capernaum as a type of home base for his ministry. And people had heard about his miracles. Hey, he's, 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 healing, you know, he's healing lepers. He's driving out demons. And the crowds flocked to him. But his message there is that he preached the word to them. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the fulfillment, by the way, of Isaiah 33, for the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver. He's our king. He will save us. No one in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. So while the majority of the people were fascinated by Christ and his miracles, he had a different message. Repent, believe the good news. The kingdom is here. 
So they need to have some men. Some, verse 3, some men came bringing him to a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So you had this paralytic. It doesn't say if it was an accident. Maybe it happened uh, a, a little while ago. Maybe it was his whole life he couldn't walk. And he was totally relying on other people. And his friend said, you know, we've got to get him to Jesus. You know, uh, if you ever watch any kind of sporting event or any kind of competition on TV, they always do like a pre-interview of the people going into this competition. What do you expect? What do you hope will happen? What will be the best for you in this competition? I can only imagine interviewing this, this guy on the way to see Jesus. What are you hoping to happen? He said, well, you know, I, I've heard he's been healing people. I guess I, I hope he heals me too. That's what I need. That's what I need to be happy. If I could only walk again, you know, I, I wouldn't complain about anything. We've caught ourselves doing that ourselves. If I could only, I would be happy. That's not what I really needed. That's not what he needed. So having made an opening on the roofs, understand the roofs back then were a lot different than roofs now. They were usually beams, and they were, they were filled with a bunch of vegetation. A lot of times people had gardens up there, and there were steps leading up to the roof. And so it wouldn't be terribly difficult to make a, a, a hole in the roof, although it would be kind of dangerous. And the four lowered the pallet on which the paralytic was, was lying. We don't read that the, that the four said anything to Jesus from the roof. We don't read that the, the paralytic said anything to Jesus either. But though the five didn't talk, they trusted, and that's what really mattered. Their confidence touched the heart of the Lord. Faith gets God's attention. When the people looked at him, they didn't see a man. They saw a body in need of a miracle. That's not what Jesus saw. That's what the people saw. And that's certainly what his friends saw. So they did what any of us would do. They would try to get him help. And this prompted verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. Now, to infer, now, to infer that this man's sin was based, or his sickness was based on some sin is unwarranted. A lot of preachers will go up and say, well, he had this, he was paralyzed because of some sin in his past. It doesn't say anything about that in the scriptures. In, in the old days, people, back then, people did assume that sin and suffering were connected. They, they argued that a grievously affected individual must have been a grievous sinner. Job's friends said that too. When Job was suffering, they wondered, you know, what, what was his sin? What did he do wrong? There's nothing in the, in the text that indicates that. Now, it is true that sin is often connected with suffering, but we don't know that from the text. So we can't infer that. What was happening here, though, is that Christ saw his faith and the faith of his friends. And he addresses the spiritual need first. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine People, the guys get all the way up to the roof, they make this big deal, they lower him in front of Jesus, and you hear Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, what a letdown, literally and metaphorically. Can you imagine all that work? I can hear the guy saying, you know, Jesus, I appreciate the fact that my sins are forgiven, but, you know, my legs, that's what I really need here. Jesus said first things first. He recognized that. He says, you may be unhappy or angry and empty now, but because you can't walk, but if I can give you what you think you need, you might become even more happy and angry and empty. I know you. I know your real problem. I know your real need. Tim Keller, in his book, The King's Cross, 
quotes a well-known New York writer who says that over the years she has known a few struggling actors and actresses who finally became famous. But before they became famous, they were, they were driven people. But when they got what they wanted, it destroyed them. She writes, I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. Their morning after each one became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. Because of the giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that thing that was going to make them happy, provide them with personal fulfillment, they got it. But they're still miserable. See, Jesus understands us. He knows us more than we know ourselves. He knows what we really need. The spiritual outweighs the physical, the tangible, material. That's why when I do counseling with folks, when we do a, a, an assessment with folks as I sit down with them and I get to talk to them a little bit, one of the first questions I ask is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal slaver? Do you understand that he died for your sins? If no, then that's where we start. Because I can talk to you all day about maybe how you can fix your family, your marriage, your finances. We can deal with that. But you're always going to be unhappy. Your eternal happiness, that's what Jesus saw in the story. Jesus' mission was not to fulfill that man's wants, to make him happy. He understood that happiness was forgiveness and eternal life with him. But understand that he was not unconcerned with his physical condition. He's not unconcerned with our physical condition either. And he ended up healing him. He ended up healing the leper. But that wasn't his primary mission, to give him his wants. Then it says the conflict. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, these people were the Sanhedrin. They were the keepers of the law. No doubt they were in the very front in that house. I can, I can just imagine the owner of the house, like Sanhedrin, you guys up front, you guys right here. Because they were prominent people. They were to guard against orthodoxy. They were watching Christ to make sure that he was doing everything correctly. And he says, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, Christ was forgiving sins. So he either was God or he was a liar. He was a blasphemer. There were many forms of blasphemy in, that, in, the, in that, those times. Uh, Paul and uh, Stephen were accused of blasphemy because they were speaking e- evils of just the laws of the day. But Christ was the ultimate form of blasphemy, according to the Sanhedrin, because he was usurping the roles of God himself. He was taking on God's power and authority to forgive sins. So immediately Jesus knew in their spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts and said to them. See, Jesus knew in their hearts they were, that's what they were thinking. This is further proof of his deity. 1 Samuel 6 says, God sees not as a man, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he takes on this issue of blasphemy with a question of his own, saying, which is easier, to heal the man or to forgive his sins? Healing of his sins is untestable proof. Healing of his body is empirically evident. But he says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, get up, take your mat and walk. He's proving to them that he was the Son of Man, that he had authority to forgive. Because if they did tie his sin to suffering and he healed, he healed his suffering as well, then they would know he's the Messiah, the Son of Man. This is, why, this is the acid test to prove that Jesus was really the Son of Man and had the authority the word authority comes from the Greek word excusia, which is power jurisdiction, like a judge to pass out sentencing or say you're free. That's what Jesus did. So the consequences. 
The man got up in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Luke's gospel says, he immediately got up and praised God on his way out, glorifying God. I can just imagine the people's faces, like my kids' faces, of awe and wonder, eyes wide open, mouth wide open, praising God for what he did. The man was immediately reconciled back to society. Jesus turned to the man who had given everything he needed, forgiveness, and then also healed his body. Gave him what he wanted so much. Get up, take up your mat, and walk. So what does this show us about what we bring to Jesus in prayer? We see that he cares. We see that he loves us. His compassion healed this man. He was moved by faith and the faith of his friends. This means that when we pray to God and ask for forgiveness and grace, God answers immediately. But understand, when we pray, we say, Lord, help me to walk again. Lord, help me with my marriage. Help me with my family, with my finances, with wisdom, with discernment. He answers in his own time and his own way. How long? It doesn't say. Sometimes we have to wait to heaven before we can walk again. Sometimes we have to wait to heaven until some tears are wiped away. That's not up to you. That's up to him. Notice for the leper, it was immediate. Touched him, and he was immediately clean. For the paralytic, there was, there was a waiting. He healed his sins first and then interacted with the Sanhedrin and everybody there asking him questions. And then he healed him. There's a waiting period. For Paul, understand, it was never taken away. Paul had a thorn in his flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take, away, take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, for, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, for Paul, it was never taken away. But he could boast all the more gladly because he had a peace and joy in his life all the way to his death. And that joy came from God, knowing that he was going to spend eternity in heaven. Because he knew that Christ already gave him everything that he needed, not necessarily what he wanted. So how do we deal with that uncertainty when we're dealing with things in our life? We go back to the very beginning of this parable. Christ knows what we need. He's already given it to us. So what's the application? What's the application? Three points, very simply. First off, we have to admire the tenacity of the leper to get to Jesus. We have to admire the determination of the friends taking their friend to Jesus. Despite the danger, they might fall. He might fall. The the social the social ramifications. It was risky, but they did it anyway because they understood that Jesus was the one that was going to heal them. Faith gets God's attention. What if they turned away? What if they said, eh, it's too hard. Can't do it. It's too inconvenient for me. It's too dangerous. What if people look at us funny? So the question is for you, are you coming to Jesus? And are you bringing your friends and family to Jesus too? Secondly, While this is true and noble that we need to come to Christ, it's not about what we want, it's about what we need. And Christ knows what we really need. 
Just like the leper and the paralytic, some of you are here this morning and you're dealing with all kinds of stuff in your life. And while I am so happy that you're here because it means you're looking above and beyond yourself, understand that that's not why Jesus came. And he's already met your need. Your wants may come. It's It's not up to you. Like Paul, who said, his grace is sufficient. I can boast, for when I am weak, I am strong. I delight in weakness and insults and hardships. I can do that because I already know Christ gave me everything I need. And I'm going to spend eternity with him. Understand, when it comes to your healing in life, your health, your marriage, your family, those things we need fixed, he may or may not. But what's far more important is to restore your relationship with the God who made you. Because as one famous pastor once said, it's better for you to lie flat on, the, on your back for the rest of your life on your way to heaven than dance through the rest of your life on your way to hell. That's why Jesus said, first things first. And finally, we need to be praising God for what he's done. As this man glorified God for things he's already given us. Some people are walking around, people I've talked to all the time who are Christians who know and love the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior, understand they died for our sins and are so down because they're so bummed about what Christ hasn't given them. And I say, look at what Christ already has given you. We need to be praising God for that this morning. Charles Spurgeon said, when we bless God for mercies, we usually prolong them. When we bless God for miseries, we usually end them. Praise is the honey of life which a devout heart extracts from every bloom of providence and grace. So that's the Jesus we need. Not the Jesus we want. We can celebrate that. We come to him with things that are on our hearts and minds. And we ask him for it, but we understand he's given us what we need. He's given us what we need. And we can bless and praise him for that. You know, I can imagine talking to this man, the post-interview with this guy, this paralytic in heaven 2,000 years later. Well, what do you think now? I can just imagine him saying, you know what, 2,000 some years ago, I I thought I knew what I needed, or really wanted, but I understand now Christ gave me everything I needed. He healed me spiritually, and that was far better because I've been able to spend eternity with him in heaven. That's what I really needed. So as we close and we approach the communion table this morning, and we remember what Christ did for us on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, what I'd like to do is read an excerpt from a book that I think summarizes everything we've said here today so perfectly. It comes from the book, He Still Moves Stones. And in it, the author, speaking of this parable, writes, The people of the house in Capernaum wanted Jesus to give the man a new body so he could walk. Jesus gives him grace so the man can live. Because to heal the body is temporal, to heal the soul is eternal. Remarkable. Sometimes God is so touched by what he sees that he gives to us what we need, and not simply for that which we ask. It's a good thing. For who would have ever thought to ask God for what he gives? Which of us would have dared to say to God, God, could you please hang yourself on a tool of torture as a substitution for every mistake that I've ever committed? And then have the audacity to add, and after you forgive me, could you prepare me a place in your house to live forever? And if that wasn't enough, and would you please live with me and protect me and guide me and bless me with more than I can ever deserve? 
honestly. Would we have the nerve to ask for that? No, we ask for little things like a long life, a healthy body, affixed to our, our marriages, our family, or our finances. Grand requests from God's perspective. But from God, from God, it's like taking the moped when he offers the limo. So knowing the paralytic didn't know enough to ask what he needed, Jesus gave it, gave it anyway. Young man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees started to grumble. Only God can forgive sins. Their mumbling spawns one of Christ's greatest questions. Which is easier, to tell this paralyzed man your sins are forgiven or tell him stand up, take your mat, and walk? You answer the question. Which is easier, to forgive a soul or to heal a body? Which caused Jesus less pain, providing this man with health or providing this man with heaven? You see, to heal the man's body took a simple command. To forgive the man's sin took Jesus' blood. The first was done in the house of friends, the second on a hill with thieves. One took a word, the other took a body. One took a moment, the other took his life. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Father, thank you for what you tell us and show us in your word. Father, thank you for the fact that you have already given us all that we need. And for the rest of it, God, our wants, our needs, our tangible, the material, Father, I pray that we give those back to you. But God, give us the patience to wait through those. Help us to be able to rely on your strength and say your grace is sufficient. And we can celebrate you despite all the things going on in our lives, Father. And Father, thank you that we can celebrate along with all of heaven every time you proclaim to us Our sins are forgiven. Bless us, Father, as we come to your table. In your name. Thank you, Pastor.